I've got a big issue with this. We've been talking on here a lot about how people don't know what marketing is. To be honest, part of the problem is reports like this one. The joke about people looking under the lamppost for something they lost because that's where the light is. I twist that by saying all the data comes from under lampposts. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast, Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. All right. So there were several items in Twitter space that came up over the past couple of weeks that we wanted to touch on. Why don't you set us up? All right. Well, the first one or the main place I want to start with is there was a report that came out from Kantar. And I don't know exactly what the date is on the report, but it circulated in the last week through Twitter. And it claims to show what the factors are that will multiply your ad dollars best, the impact of your ad dollars. So if you spend a buck, this factor will multiply it by two, this factor will multiply it by 10. That's what it claims to do. And it's based on an econometric marketing mix model from somebody. Now, I have very good friends who are incredibly skeptical of marketing mix modeling. So I'm going to start that, yes, I have a little bit of a bias. Then Kantar did a survey among executives and had them look at the same list without telling them what the econometric guy found and had them rank those for what would multiply your ad dollars best. And of course, there were some discrepancies between the two, but I don't want to talk about the nitty gritty. Mm. I've got a big issue with this. You know, we've been talking on here a lot about how people don't know what marketing is. And to be honest, part of the problem is reports like this one from Kantar. Because as I look through the list, it's missing two of the four Ps. If product, the quality, value, goodness of your product isn't the number one multiplier of advertising impact, I don't know what the guy studied. He missed product. Even worse, perhaps, he missed place. You know, one of the real multipliers of of advertising impact is if you put a dollar out there and you're in three stores, you'll get one thing back. If you put a dollar out there and you're in six stores, you'll get a lot more back. It might not be twice, but you're going to get a lot more back. And so product and place are nowhere to be seen in this list of multipliers. It's so disconnected from the reality of real people doing marketing. And it's so misleading because it omits product and it omits place, two of the four Ps. You know, right on on, a, on several topics. To me, it was back to data. Mm-hmm. You know, the joke about people looking under the lamppost for, yeah. for something they lost because that's where the light is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I twist that by saying all the data comes from under lampposts. Mm-hmm. You need to have the wherewithal to put lampposts everywhere mm-hmm. and understand what data you're getting. Mm-hmm. Are we tracking all the variables? How do we know yeah. the ones we're tracking are really the significant ones? Yeah. The idea of taking a survey, because survey to me is turning opinions into facts, Mm-hmm. You've talked about the importance of building these questionnaires correctly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they can really mislead you. So mm-hmm. how are the questionnaires designed? 
did the people respond to them actually read and grok the meaning in the same way and had a thoughtful answer? What is the quality of the data? Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of the data? You're even more serious when you get to the data. There is a presumption there that this econometrist, econometrist, however you say it, mm. um, studied and knew which dollars came from the advertising. And one of the things you never know in life is exactly which sales came from advertising and exactly how many dollars came from advertising and all those kinds of things. It's a fuzzy world. I mean, you can estimate it. You can guess at it. You can play with it. You have to if you're going to manage marketing and manage advertising. Isn't that where the big saying came from, that half of your advertising dollars are wasted? You just don't know which half? Yeah, and that's from you know that's from a frustrated executive who getting pissy at that point in time. And the truth is, I think we know a lot better than that, but we still don't know with precision. And that's the myth, right? I mean, we get caught up in society with this idea that we should know everything precisely, especially in business. Everything we know precisely. No, there's a lot of things in this business we don't know precisely. We can say, hey, the ad was effective. What we can't right. say is. That ad produced exactly this much sale in sales, mm, um, unless you're in tiny channels. If you're only offered through the phone, okay, you can count the phone calls. But if you're in a real market with real complexity, you can't get that precise. You can only work with estimates. So the myth here, and economists, I have to confess, I think do this to us more often than we'd like, is he took some kind of data and just presumed it was accurate. Um, and I don't know what tests he did to try to make that true, but it's never accurate. You cannot make that assumption. Yeah. The other thing about the report that I was thinking about was that what I really like to see is a curve, a line, a graph Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. shows how much sales we have with zero advertising. Right. Mm -hmm. And then vary the amount of advertising and see what it does to sales. Now, I don't know if this is a kind of experiment that is practical to run, in many occasions, but that would be the way to at least see some sort of an elasticity right. towards advertising spend. And then the other thing that they had that I liked was that they were looking at the magnitude of how advertising helps and the percentage. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that instead of just taking sales from ads and dividing it by cost of ads, which kind of gives you an ROI view, maybe you should also take sales from ads and subtract the cost from it and see what magnitude of right offering it gave you. Yeah. Well, and I I agree. I mean, both of those actually are what we should use. Unfortunately, in the report, they say, well, you should never use the ratio of sales to advertising. Uh, Truth is, I've used that a lot, and it's highly effective when you use it with all the cautions that need to be there. Um, Their idea of the magnitude of sales minus advertising, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. uh, really important too. And I've done a lot of that kind of work as well. The the point is we have to be more flexible with our metrics. I think in general, quantification of marketing is just a really complicated thing. And and we have to recognize that we are just trying to put our arms around it. And the only thing we can do is to establish a baseline and then see if we can improve it. (laughs) And do it in such a way that we don't forget half of marketing, two of the four P's, as we do it, because that just, you know, I cannot explain how much that angers me, that they can't, and here's this big, you know, they have all these claims to be in this great organization in Kantar, 
And yeah. yet they completely misrepresent what marketing is in this, perhaps by accident, but I don't care if it's by accident or not. It leaves behind with the CEOs who read it, marketing missing product, marketing missing place. You know, I try to read it again with a little bit more generous mm-hmm. frame of mind. And I thought mm-hmm. that maybe brand actually incorporates the product and its quality. Yeah. And obviously, in some ways, it implicitly does. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's a glaring yeah. omission to not address them directly. Well, and I think, you know, my experience is I agree with you. I think, in fact, that's what's happened is at the top of his list of multipliers is brand. Well, brand implies how big is your distribution? How, you know, what are your products? On the other hand, in action, what I see is that people will work off this report and say, well, all we care about is our brand not our product. So let's go do a bunch of ads that get people convinced we're a sexier brand. Right. Yeah, but right, where's the product? Right. Well, we don't need that in the ads. You know, we just need the sexier brand. So another topic. Yes. As as many of our listeners know, personally, we have listeners. <laughs> and we are honored that we have listeners and we are honored that a particularly prominent listener was in touch with us about a topic. So do you want to set us up for that? Yeah. The question this listener asked is that they're part of a law firm of 300 lawyers and they now have a marketing staff with several full-time folks. As a lawyer, he's not sure exactly what they do. (laughs) They help design website content and help put together PowerPoints, but he's kind of trying to understand what are good marketing strategies for a professional services firm like themselves, or how does marketing for them differ from other marketing we talk about on this broadcast about retail-oriented or other things? And it's a great question because there's a lot of people around who are marketing professional services. And to be honest, both you and I have spent a big portion of our lives marketing professional services. I mean, in my case, yes, I did marketing on behalf of clients, but in order for them to become clients, I had to sell professional services. And so I've I've done a lot of it myself. Not that I have any sense of whether I'm close to the right answers because it's a very difficult area. Yeah. And we also have worked for companies that have had services and professional services attached to an actual physical product Mm -hmm. that was necessary to turn that product into an acceptable, Mm -hmm. quote, solution for the customer. Service or professional service is just another offering. Mm -hmm. I think many of us are at pains to use the word product, meaning offering, Mm -hmm. that it includes products and services and professional services and other things, like whatever it is that you are trying to sell. Mm -hmm. And we just shorten it to the word product product, recognizing that product isn't necessarily physical. Mm -hmm. But because it is just another offering, the four Ps continue to apply. Mm -hmm. Your value proposition and audience continue to apply. And critically for marketing, what does your sales cycle look like? Mm -hmm. Because unless you know your sales cycle, it's hard to really come up with a marketing mix to improve it. And if you don't know what your sales cycle is like, everything you do in sales and marketing at best is going to give you the sales cycle. And now that you know that, you can go improve it. If I was going in to talk to the firm, in fact, I would start with, all right, how do new clients arrive at your doorstep? Bingo. I want to know how does somebody end up on the phone with you or end up knocking on your door or end up in a first meeting? We have to start from that point of view in order to understand what's going on here. And I think it's even trickier for professional services firms because we get 
approach these days with a lot of people claiming to know how to all works through lead generation or HubSpot or whatever the, you know, the great things they claim are. But you know what? How does somebody get to your doorstep is a pretty interesting question. And I think, you know, the thing I found in my business was the single most effective was when people arrived at my doorstep from a referral. Yeah. The truth is over 20 years of operation, I do not believe we ever closed a cold call. I don't think we ever had somebody just call us up because they saw our ad in the magazine or saw our name listed in some directory that ended up going anywhere. Yeah. Those calls were tended to be a lot of wasted time, a lot of wasted energy, and just didn't do that. And, you know, I'm sure there's people out there that might say, well, you were doing it wrong. Maybe I was. I don't know. I can't quite say. But what I did find is that when we recognized the referral connection and relied on it, our efforts got much better because we were able to give up doing things that weren't making that much difference to us. Right. I think the customizability of the service yeah. and the mm-hmm. special circumstances around the service are also really important. Yes. A professional service is really about what it is that you deliver, and that is not physical. Mm-hmm. And the manner in which you deliver, mm-hmm. the consistency of how you deliver it across multiple customers, and the quality with which you deliver, mm-hmm. how do you do it? So, you know, right. we're going to get to recommendations in a bit. Sometimes it's geographically dependent because the service is delivered in a particular place. There's one of the P's of the four P's. And your reputation and your fit really become important. Mm-hmm. So let's move to what do you do? What is your recommendation? What is our well, recommendation? Let me, actually, let me start a little bit here and, and, and split things up. I mean, in my business, we generally did one kind of project, right? So anybody coming to us was after this type of project. And it could be a long video. It could be a video for sales or it could be a short ad, but nonetheless, it all had this sense of the same kind of service offered over and over and over. I think when you get to a law firm, it gets tricky because what people are buying from a law firm is the intelligence of a lawyer doing work on whatever they need, contracts, setting up the business, arguing with partners, even moving into litigation. So in my case, I could sell service more like it was a product. Well, here's what you're buying. You're buying this chunk of us, and here's what you'll get at the other end. Whereas going to a law firm, you're going to a law firm saying, well, we need you to solve this. And I've done this with law firms. And you say, about how much will it cost? And a lot of times you're getting an answer, which is, well, we'll cap it at 3500 but we can't guarantee that that's going to have you satisfied at that point. Mm-hmm. And because you have kind of this open-ended vagary about what is that service. And I think that makes law firms particularly hard, but also probably particularly important for referral or other methods of people arriving at your door. So, um, you know, one of the other parts, and this gets towards recommendations, is I got most of my leads through referrals, but the single most productive lead I got was when I spoke at a trade show. So I was at the hardware show. Yeah, I sold a lot of pliers and uh, sockets and stuff like that. I was at the hardware show. And I gave a presentation on what we did at the hardware show. And a guy came up to me and handed me his card and said, uh, can I have your phone number? I want to call you. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm not thinking it's going to turn out to be much. And I'm walking around the trade show. He calls me in the afternoon says, can you come by our booth at three o'clock? I go by their booth at three o'clock. I connect with their head of sales for the head of the North American unit. And we hit it off famously. And we worked together for two or three years. And eventually that individual tells Lowe's, 
hey, I know a guy when Lowe's says they were looking for somebody like me. And mm. We closed Lowe's and did eight years worth of work with Lowe's. I mean, it just blew up. Mm. But I think that's one the other part is we can get people referring people to us. But we also, if we're able to be out in the community exhibiting what we do, exhibiting our intelligence, exhibiting our approaches, exhibiting our kind of sense of things, then we'll get right. people coming to us. And I think for services, those two are probably the primary two most effective ways of getting out. That, that's a great story. And I think that is demonstrating somehow the fit and the approach and the quality of what you had shown just resonated. Mm -hmm. And that's how it kicked it off. So mm -hmm. I think one thing you can do is to have documented processes mm -hmm. to the extent possible, mm -hmm. not to limit yourself, right. but to think about the bigger picture pieces mm -hmm. of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in our business, we say that the first step is data gathering then it's analysis, mm -hmm. then it's synthesis, then it's change management. Okay, now right. those are high level and mm -hmm. there are many different ways of formulating that, but that centers us and here's our process, here's how we go about it. Right. The second thing I think you want to do is to productize when possible. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, for example, you know, incorporation and con Now, law firms do that naturally. They do have mm -hmm. areas of specialties, but I'm suggesting that you go a little bit deeper than that and maybe you go one layer lower. Well, I think you're absolutely right that if you can also come in with a starter kit, some sort of starter bid, that then people have a nice comfort because they know they aren't signing up for an open-ended thing that's going to suck them into spending forever. And it sets up the idea of, hey, we're testing you out as well, which I like because you should always, you know, clients come to you doesn't mean that they're right for you. That's right. And rejecting a client that's not right for you is a very important thing to be able to this is right on, and I think it goes back to understanding your sales cycle. Yes. What does it take for people and your audience? If you're catering only to the Fortune 50, then maybe your starter kit is different and the way you might reel them in is different than mm -hmm. if you're looking at individuals or small businesses. So you need to understand your audience and how they go about acquiring these things so mm -hmm. you match their, their buying behavior. But I think the other thing you want to do is to focus on how you deliver things because mm -hmm. the differentiation is in the how. Okay. And you can demonstrate that in many different ways, especially these days. Now, that requires that you expose more of yourself than you may be comfortable, that this is how we go about it. Mm -hmm. There's competitive considerations on how much you want to disclose. Yeah, we get that. But I think the how is probably where the differentiation is. And that, I think, supersedes the what, because the what is the productization to some extent. Right. And then, of course, who you are and mm -hmm. your pedigree and why it makes you a suitable choice for the audience that you're after. With that, one of the things you and I have talked about before is how much clients want to have the person that they deal with before their client be the person they deal with after their client. And this is true in ad agencies, so I'll give the ad agency example because I know it close. A lot of agents, ad agencies will hire new business people. Clients hate them because what the client wants to figure out is they're not buying the agency. They're buying the services of the people who are going to do the work. Yes. And so they really want to know who are these people who are going to do the work. Do I like them? Do I trust them? Yes. Do I know how I'd work with how? What are they going to bring to me that's unique? And that's, that is some of the differentiation. That's that how is, well, hey, if you come with us, you're going to work with Doug. And then I go in and say, well, here's my approach to life. Um, and I think that's really important. I think you said you, you found that with your work too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Relevant to this is the desire to have 
seller doers mm-hmm. and to clarify to the customer that this is how the senior people are engaged. Mm-hmm. Here's how we delegate to the more junior folks. This is why we have documented processes so that as it yeah. goes farther away from us, consistency is ensured and mm-hmm. we're actually going to oversee the whole project. So we're involved. I think yeah. those are the ways that you can provide comfort to the customer. So with that, let me return to one of the kind of the key core of the question that our listener offered, which is what should a marketing department do in a law firm? Because seller doers are who people want to be dealing with. And so the marketing department's not going to be the seller doers. What are the things that a marketing department can do to make a law firm's business grow? We'll just put it that way. And there's obvious basics like make sure the image is consistent, make sure that all the materials presented by the law firm are identifiable, distinctive as that law firm's materials whenever possible, although legal documents are guaranteed to look boring. But anyway, that's the way it is. And then I was thinking, okay, so maybe do they manage arranging speaking and writing? for law partners. Because if you have a marketing department that's actually arranging opportunities for those connections with the seller doers, that seems like a really important thing. The other thing is to do that in the areas of expertise of the law firm so that your people are engaged. I've got a friend who's a specialist in environmental law, and he flies all over the country to be engaged in that conversation so that when a client comes in, they know he's got credibility. Yeah. What else would you add? Oh, I think marketing can do a lot for law firms and similar services because the name recognition of the firm and the name recognition of the individual lawyers has such a big impact Mm -hmm. on how people approach them and how people seek them out and how much they're willing to pay to get those services. So what is the balance then? And I'm just, this is, I'm curious because we had to fight this in my firm that in fact, it eventually became, you're coming to Atomic to work with Doug and the rest of the team. But you know, I was always the lead, you know, we built personality for we in the marketplace. We built a brand for me of some type. And what's the balance of that in law firms, you know? Because how much do you want the individual lawyer to be the hero? And how much is that distracting from actually building a solid law firm? In part, this is a function of the size of the organization. I think smaller firms of any kind are necessarily driven by a small number of personalities. But if you've got 300 lawyers in the firm, Mm -hmm. that gives you a lot more latitude to show the bench strength. You know, now you become like a sports team. You may have a few stars for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean the rest of the team aren't as good. It just means that they're better known and you could leverage that and the quality of the team. Well, and after all, celebrity is such a volatile, odd, ephemeral thing. I would caution clients that the celebrity of lawyers that you're going to hire is probably not the best judgment on which to pick a firm. But in, you know, big firms, it's all a team. How do we compose the team that's going to deliver for you? Um, I know we're going a little long here, but uh, the third question you asked me was, how do you get customer testimonials? Is it easy? Is it hard? What's the difference between B2C and B2B? And I don't have any absolute answers. What I will say is I do think it's a delicate question. You and I have talked before. Here's how I saw it. I had clients who didn't want us to put out press releases about the work we did for them. Mm. And the reason was the minute we would put out a press release, they would get pestered by vendors who were calling them up saying, 
we should do your telemarketing. You know, we could buy your media. And they're like, no, no, please don't put out a press release because I'm going to get pummeled with all this detritus that I don't want to get. So testimonials are actually a little more tricky than it seems like maybe they should be. I think in business to consumer, some consumers enjoy the opportunity for a little mini celebrity, a little reality TV celebrity, you know? Exactly. Um, I know I had just pictures in it in one of our shows that we did for somebody because I'd made some stuff with their product. And I had people would say, hey, I saw you on the TV this morning. And I'd be like, really? You know, but yeah, they would come and tell me that it was kind of weird, you know? So I think, but you have to figure out kind of what that role is. You have to figure out where you're going to use them. Are you using them in websites? Are you sending them out? Are they private testimonials that are kind of used for closing once people get in touch with you? There's a lot of different ways you can help cover up that going out there. But the last thing I'll say is get more than you need. Mm. I've had too many clients come in and say, oh, we've got three great testimonials. Oh, my God. We can't deal with that. We need 10 because four of them aren't going to work out. Mm. And the other, they're going to have three that are okay, but not going to really do a lot. We'll have three really good ones. Always get more than you need. Always be looking for them. And always look for them to do something a little bit surprising. Mm. Because if they will say something that people don't expect, that's what people want to hear about. You know, what's so different about working with Orion X? You know, when we work with Orion X and they tell something that other people are going to be like, what? Oh, that's interesting. They'll remember Orion X. If they just say Orion X took care of our needs and paid attention to our account, eh, you know, what else would you expect? Yeah. Of course, this reminds me the difficulty of marketing on your own behalf. We have talked about trying to get testimonials from our past customers and we never do, <laughs> you know, occasionally they're kind enough to send us one mm-hmm. that we could use, but it's never been a real project. Yeah. Now for some of the clients that we've had, a customer reference program in a B2B environment can be a very substantial mm-hmm. effort because if you are in a B2B environment, like you said, some customers don't want to mm-hmm. participate. Some will participate in this kind of a testimonial, but not that kind of testimonial. Like a quote in a press release may be okay, but a video team arriving at their office to video shoot for half a day is not. Mm -hmm. Some may join a webinar you're doing and talk about what they do. Some may get on stage and talk Mm -hmm. at an event that you may have. Some will receive a call from another prospective customer. But then before you do that, you want to make sure that there's no firefighting going on right now. It's not like their system just broke two days ago and they are in a particularly bad mood right now. So all of that makes it really complicated. Yeah. We really like these guys once they fix our system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you want to check, you want to check with the account management team on whether now is the right time to approach them because they might be working on a new deal. I got to tell you, I had a telemarketing vendor once and I said, Hey, look, I need, I need uh, references. And so they gave me three references and I call up one of the references. They said, Oh my God, they were horrible. They just sucked. Yeah, okay. uh, it's kind of like, <laughs> wow, you guys got to check your references because that was not an appropriate uh, idea. Um, okay, let's right. talk about the thing. This is what people love to do. This is the last bit of talking mm-hmm. about, which is people love the idea of we're going to have people send in their own video testimonials. Isn't that going to be great? Now, have you participated in any of those programs? No. I have, um, <laughs> you know, in consumer business, there's always this idea like we're just going to have people. Yeah, let me tell you what. Uh, you can gather some interesting information through those, some, but you're going to spend a lot of time waiting through video. 
What I have yet to see is anybody send in a testimonial that's usable. When I worked with them for one of our clients, they somebody sent in a testimonial that had potential to be really interesting, and then we were set out to film it. And so we went out and did filming at this person's house and all this stuff and did a really nice ad based on what they told us. But you know what you forget is the idea that somebody's going to hand up, hold up their iPhone and do something that is really meaningful to your customers, you've got like a, a icicle's chance in hell of that working out. Mm. The other thing I wanted to say about referrals and testimonials was we had four categories that we wanted our testimonials to come from. Mm-hmm. The well-known customer, mm-hmm. the up-and-coming customer, mm-hmm. and then the third one was the unexpected. Right. It was like the Department of Motor Vehicles in some state and say, what? Where'd that come from? And then the fourth one, probably the most interesting one, is the competitive, Mm -hmm. where it was a competitive replacement. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's another way to really choreograph your case studies and testimonials. Yeah, I think that's the other part is when you look for multiple testimonials, you're always looking for people from different backgrounds. A lot of our tool testimonials, we wanted to talk to people who were respected, high quality, I might say high quality DIYs. And you wanted them to look that way so that when we'd go in and film, we'd film them in their shop and film them doing work. One of the best testimonials we ever got in terms of just both a little bit of surprise and effectiveness was a guy who built tons of stuff. And we were talking with him about the drill doctor and sharpening drill bits. And what he told us is he said, you know, when you're doing work, there's something about momentum. And if you can keep your momentum going, you get a lot more done. And we all went, my God, that's it. Ah, and it that's good came insight. out. It was a tremendous insight. And he only knew it because he was a real expert. And it became a core part. Not only the testimonial became a core part, but we picked up that idea and uh, would keep talking about it in other work we did. Yeah, we should come back to this because we want to wrap now, but mm-hmm. the impact of testimonials on your value proposition yeah. and how it can course correct what mm-hmm. that is. Absolutely. So good stuff. Another good episode. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you to all our listeners. Please keep the questions coming. Do the right thing. If you're a marketing type, share, like, etc. And enjoy your summer. <laughs> Indeed. So take care all. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.